Hello. Welcome to the second episode of the Sepro podcast. Today I am talking with Mark Adams, who's quite well known in the minerals industry. He is currently the director of global proposals management with Autotech. In the past, he's held roles with Glencore Technology, Tech Resources, a few other companies. He's very active in the nonprofit sector. Uh, I'll hit the highlights here since getting through the full list would probably take longer than this podcast itself. Um, currently a member of the Engineers and Geoscientists BC Council and on the board of directors of several nonprofits, uh, including the North Shore Stroke Recovery Center and the Veterans Memorial Housing Society. Uh, he was recently awarded the Ray McDonald Volunteer Award uh, by the Canadian Mineral Processors, which is a technical branch of the uh, CIM. Today we talk about a number of things. Uh, we cover the nonprofit sector and Mark's experience there. So if you, you know, ever thought of getting interested in nonprofit, make sure to keep listening. We also talk about best practices for remote work, which is especially relevant during the current COVID-19 situation around the world. Mark, before this started, led a globally distributed team across many time zones. So he has a lot of personal experience to share and best practices. So if that's something you'd like to learn more about, uh, stay tuned. I hope you enjoy this episode and we look forward to everybody's feedback. Here with Mark Adams, longtime friend, former uh, classmate at UBC. Um, as I just mentioned before we started recording, I always find it's good to, you know, get somebody's background just to, you know, try to better place where they are kind of right now in their careers and their lives. Um, so you, did you grow up in North Van? Is that right, Mark? I did, yeah. In uh, I grew up in North Van. And then when I left UBC, I uh, I moved up to Kamloops for a few years when I was working for uh, for tech resources at, at Highland Valley and then moved back to uh, North Van uh, after that because we, my wife and I were starting to have kids and we've got the grandparents out here. So it, uh, you know, got to get that free babysitting. It worked out great. Yeah, always super convenient. <laughs> what uh, what made you decide to go to UBC? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if I I think it was just because it was the you know it was it was a great school close to home. I did apply for um, you know a, a number of schools across Canada and um, was successful at uh, at some of those and just decided that uh, I thought it was the best the best option for me to keep my options open. Frankly, to uh, to stay close to home and and um, and and go from there. Did you always know that you wanted to do engineering? I knew I wanted to go into engineering since um, I think it was grade six or seven. I had a uh, I had uh, I was in a split French immersion class, so we were learning both French and English. Um, and uh, I had we had two teachers actually. Um, I'm not even sure why that was now that I think about it. But we did it. We did have two full time teachers for for our grade six, uh, seven class. And uh, one of them was a guy named uh, Dan Dornan, and he was doing a piece on, he was doing a lesson on, uh, you know, on science or something like that. And it, uh, what, what the lesson was, was um, he, he showed uh, a, dist a, a distance uh, between two land masses, and he asked all the, the kids to draw a bridge in between them. And uh, <laughs> if I remember 
you know, most of the kids, they drew a bridge with, you know, like a huge 45 degree incline on the front, then it went across straight and then it went down 45 degrees on the other side, something like that. And then afterwards he, he showed us that it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a made up example. It was actually the, uh, it was actually Burrard Inlet and it was the, the landmass between Stanley Park and North Vancouver where the Lionsgate Bridge spans. And of course, when you look at the bridge um, from a side profile, it's completely flat all the way across. And I just remember that being so cool that we thought, you know, this, this bridge would look so different. And, uh, you know, we, him and I ended up getting into a little side conversation during, during recess or something like that. And uh, he, he said to me, have you ever thought about being an engineer? And until that moment, I hadn't. And pretty much as of that moment, that was what uh, I had kind of decided to do. So. Oh, interesting. That's a really interesting origin story. So, I mean, that leads to the natural question of why you ended up in, in mining and not in civil if it, if the spark was due to bridge construction. Yeah. So I, I definitely thought I was, I probably thought I would go into civil when I went to UBC. Um, but I think in retrospect, that was probably just because I didn't know what all the other disciplines were. I think my choices when, when we were looking at second year were uh, chemical and civil. Um, well, I guess before mining, before mining was an option, it was it was kind of chemical and civil. Um, but you know, UBC did such a great job. Uh, you know, they we used to have a class, which you, I know you remember, where all the different uh, departments would be able to present on their discipline of engineering, and it, it was a short presentation, but you kind of got a feel for for what that was like. And what I loved about mining was it seemed like a close knit community. Uh, everyone knew each other. The professors and the students all had um, you know were all very close. Um, and it seemed like a, a great um, a great opportunity, you know, in in the resources sector, and, and there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, opportunity, uh, money wise and travel wise, and all this other stuff. And so, based on that short presentation, I uh, I, I selected mining as the first choice and, and ended up doing that. So, I guess now that you're making me reflect on these two decisions, I, I you know I I've always known that my uh, I'm pretty decisive, but I you know, one might consider that quite decisive with maybe an hour long conversation, making two major life decisions on both. <laughs> well, I feel like there are more significant decisions that have been made on, made on less information. <laughs> maybe. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, on the, you know, I know that, um, works one part of your life, but you do a lot on, um, you know, with nonprofits and other kind of organizations, now, am I, and I just thought one of the coolest things um, that I found out about you was the fact that, you know, during the summers at university, you were doing uh, training with the Canadian Army Reserves, right? Yeah, the Air Force. Yeah. The Air Force Reserve. Sorry, apologies. Yeah. No so had you, had you done air cadets in high school? I know that's a pretty typical thing for a lot of people. Yeah, I did. I was, um, yeah, I was in air cadets for about six years, um, all through, through high school. Um, and for those, of, for those who don't know about the program, it's a, it's a Canadian government funded, uh, youth program. Um, I would say it's, you know, it's, it has a lot of similarities to, uh, to Boy Scouts, uh, and Girl Guides in the sense that, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, for, for younger people, but it's really all about, you know, instilling life skills in uh, citizenship and volunteering and those kind of things that are, that are, uh, you know, really important to the fabric of Canadian and I would say global society. Right. So what, what got you interested in that when you were younger? Do you recall? 
Yeah, that was, I, I didn't know about the program. And um, then I, uh, me and a group of friends had met uh, a couple other friends. So we, I went to, uh, because I was in a French elementary school, when we went to high school, um, you combined with other schools because, you know, there were less and less people in the grades as they went up. And uh, we had, you know, made some new friends in, in, uh, in high school. I think we had met some guys in, in grade seven. And uh, they were they were in cadets uh, in North Van locally, and uh, you know they invited us to come down and check it out. And and uh, right when I saw it, I I thought it was something uh, that was a good fit for me. Um, I had been in, in Boy Scouts uh, before that as well, um, but um, had had done that for for I, I can't remember now, maybe two, three, four years when I was you know when I was when I was in my six, seven, eight years old kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, so it was it was through uh, some mutual friends when I was younger. And you do, am I, am I right? Cause I think I had some friends who did, you do glider flights and things like that in, in air cadets. Is that right? Yeah, you do. You do. Uh, so pilot training is, is part of it. Um, and everyone's got to do a little bit of that. They kind of, what the, what's great about the program is they like to get people exposed to a lot of different things. And then you sort of get to choose what's really of interest to you and what you want right. to pursue at a higher level. So, you know, we all had to do uh, flying or gliding or, or as we call it, you know, powered aircraft uh, with engines and uh, it was never really for me. I mean, people sometimes think it's odd that I went into air cadets and, you know, never really had an interest in being a pilot. But I guess it was more, you know, the program is so much more than than just the flying. And of course, I've got plenty of friends who ended up being pilots and now work for Air Canada and Cathay Pacific and those types of things. And they love it. But it was really the, the flying thing was was never really for me, although we got we at least got to have a taste of it, which was nice. So what parts were you most interested in? So they had they had some streams uh, that were focused on uh, leadership, which was uh, which you know as a young person, you, I guess it's a it's a really new concept, and they really try uh, the the whole training program you go through. You know when you start when you're 12 years old, and you start learning not about leadership but about followership to begin with, right? So how to be a good team member and how to be uh, you know a good follower and contribute in those ways. And then as you get a little older, you know, they move into leading teams and, and, and leading your peers and, and leading other people. And that just really was really impactful for me um, as a teenager. And that's the area that uh, I actually really focused on was, was the leadership development. Okay. And interested enough that, you know, you, you spent your summers during university. Um, I, I guess it's a more formal transition into, into reserves, you know, it's not cadets anymore yeah exactly so you it's a complete completely optional there's i mean of course there's there are many people who you know really enjoy the cadet program and go on to to serve in the the canadian military but it's it's in no way uh it's no way mandatory but you know many people feel compelled that they you know they like that attitude of of service and giving back and and they want to do it so yeah i made that same decision and when i when i left the cadet program when i was 19 i i uh started working as an adult, um, uh, first as a, as a volunteer and then joining the, the air force when I was 20. So would you ever, cause I know, you know, I had friends who'd considered to go and did go to, you know, RMC, uh, relatively Royal military college. Is that something you ever thought about or considered doing? I did. Yeah. And that was actually, that was one of the universities that I applied for when, uh, when I was also applying to UBC and I was accepted actually to RMC, but, um, I had thought, you know, again, on that thread of kind of keeping my options open, I, I guess, you know, being quite young and not knowing exactly which direction I wanted my life to take or what type of engineering to go into or, or that kind of thing. 
Um, I just decided it would actually, it would, it would, for me personally, it would uh, leave a few more doors open to, let's say, as we call it, do a civilian university degree rather than join the military and do it. Um, and, and I'm, I'm happy with that decision that I've made. And, you know, I, I feel like I got a lot of the best of both worlds because I still got to serve as a reservist and, and be, you know, a military officer. Um, but at the same time also have a, a, a successful, um, career outside of the military. So I'm, I'm really happy with, with that decision. Right. Did it ever, did you have one of those classic decision points? Like, have you ever considered seriously considered, um, enlisting at some point after university or was it, you know, life went off in a different direction. So you're never kind of, you know, felt that strongly about it. I would say probably the latter. It, uh, I, I had always thought, you know, I remember thinking, you know, I remember having an interest in law, uh, after university and thinking, yep. you know, maybe, maybe law school is something for me, you know, take, you know, we, we have friends that, you know, have engineering degrees and then have gone on to, uh, become lawyers. And, um, I even went so far as to write the bar and, or sorry, not the bar, the, uh, the, uh, the LSAT, LSAT. The, the LSAT, yeah. the, the, uh, the uh, test to get into law school. Um, but then again, decided, you know, after four years of school at UBC in engineering, I just felt like I had, I had come too far and, and didn't want to start over. And, uh, I, I think I had the same sort of feeling on, um, on, on the, the military side, right. That I, I had made a decision to, to kind of have a civilian career and a military career. And, uh, it was, it was a good, it was going well for me. It was a good fit. And it wasn't something that, uh, I, w I wasn't really compelled. It was a thought, but I wasn't really compelled to to make the change and go full time in the military. Right. Yeah. I mean, an engineering degree is a it's a big undertaking, and certainly have the utmost respect for. Like you said, there are a few people we know who did, um, you know, back to back arduous degrees. So my hats certainly off to those people. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe continuing on, um, you know, since we've been talking about the thread of of service and that kind of thing, maybe you can talk through, you know, some of the uh, organizations you've been involved with, you know, outside of work or peripheral to work that, you know, continue on in that that service theme. Yeah, so I mean, service is is absolutely a, a core value in my life, and and I really feel like you know for for, for me being very lucky to be raised in a, you know, a loving, a loving home and, and have a great job and now have a great family of my own. I really feel like it's, uh, it's my duty to give back and, and help those who, who haven't been as lucky as me and, and, uh, and give back. It's really a big, big passion in my life. Uh, you know, if it certainly as much, if not more than my, my, uh, my career in mining. So, so yeah, over the last sort of, uh, 15 years, 10 years, um, I've been involved um, on the boards of, uh, of a number of, of nonprofits, um, either on the board or a committee of the board. Um, and some of those, those have been in, in different areas. Some of them have, have been related uh, to the mining industry or to, to engineering. Um, others have been advocating for youth or education or uh, seniors, uh, healthcare, um, veterans, was obviously something close to to my heart, uh, being a veteran myself, but also having having friends that uh, personally served overseas and hearing their stories and and uh, those types of things. So, you know, it's kind of a wide range of things, and I think it really keeps it uh, it keeps it really interesting and it keeps the the learnings very fresh because I think one of the really important things with learning anything is you can learn so much by looking cross industry. Uh, and I, I certainly have been really feel like I've been able to take 
what's going well in, all, in different boards that I've worked with and apply it to the other boards. And you, you always, you end up seeing so much that eventually, you know, I now feel like I'm at a point where, you know, you can join a new board and, uh, you know, after a few months, you can really start to identify what's going really well on this board for this organization and, and you know, what, uh, what could improve. And then think about, you know, how did we do things differently on other boards that I had, that I had participated in or, you know, applying uh, experience from work and, and that type of thing to, to the, the nonprofits as well. Can you talk through that a little bit? I mean, like, obviously, you know, not necessarily naming or calling out organizations that had some, uh, some room for improvement, but, you know, some of the typical things that you've seen where, you know, it was, it was easy to pick up a few quick wins or make a few, you know, insightful suggestions when, when you're walking into a new situation. Yeah, I think um, some of the, you know, I've really found that almost every board that I've been on had a different, uh, let's call it a, a key challenge that they were dealing with. Um, a lot of times it's fundraising, other times it's accounting uh, and that kind of thing. I've been the treasurer on, on a number of uh, boards. Other times it's a lot of administrative stuff, uh, like the governance portions of, of those boards. And then other times when it gets, um, you know, even I would say more complicated, but also really a lot more fun is when those organizations also have staff members and people that they serve directly. Um, and in those cases as well, you know, you're, you, you have a group of people that, that the board is looking after, right? You've got your executive director, let's say, and their staff, and you're looking out for them and you're looking out for also for, for the members or your customers or, or uh, those types of things. So it's kind of, you know, I like to go into any board and really look at these sort of broad themes like governance, finance, accounting, fundraising, uh, et cetera, and sort of drill down into each of them and really see, you know, what is, what is really the root of where I can help the most on, on this board? What's really the, let's say, the key challenge that, that this organization has? Okay. So do you, do you characterize it that, you know, like every, you know, every organization is kind of unique and different in its own way and is going to have a different, you know, kind of path to follow to get things on the rails or, you know, do you see, hey, often, you know, like, um, you know, A, B and C are, are pretty common among areas, you know, that, that can be improved. I, I guess I asked this because, you know, my, my wife's um, involved in some, some nonprofit, some local nonprofit organizations as well. And, you know, one of the things that I, you know, you brought up fundraising and uh, my sense is maybe this is, maybe this is right. Maybe this is wrong. My sense is that sometimes or often, you know, you'll get people who have a very strong passion about what the particular issue is, um, but perhaps not as much experience or not as much focus on providing funds to, to support that. You know, which may be a completely different skill set than than actually tackling, um, you know, the issue that that they're pointed towards. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think boards need to look at their own diversity and look at where they're where those key issues are for them and uh, what uh, what kind of skills they want to bring on to fill those needs. Because, um, you know, it's it's one thing for a board to say, you know, we'll take anyone that can help. But, you know, that's definitely not the ideal way to do it. The ideal way to do it is to to look at the skill set that an existing board has, what the challenges right. are now or what they will be in the future, and really try to recruit to fill those missing, those gaps. The same as you would do in business, right? I mean, I, I you know, I do apply a lot of the same kind of, um, you know, things from business and, and strategy and that kind of thing to nonprofit boards. I mean, it's, some people actually get a little uncomfortable thinking of, of nonprofits as businesses because their goal is not to actually 
make a profit as it were, but certainly the challenges are very similar in a lot of cases. So, uh, you know, I would even, I would even argue in, in, in business, you know, I think that's the way that I approach problems is I look at these large buckets and, and say, you know, where, where are these high level challenges? And then what's the biggest, what do we really need to focus on? And let's drill down into that. Right. And of course, in the, in that same way, you want to hire people with the skill sets that you're missing um, to, to fill up your team. And, and the same goes for, for nonprofit boards. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the organizations you're involved with right now? Yeah, sure. So, um, maybe probably two of the, two of the more interesting, uh, ones. I mean, they're, they're all interesting in their, in their own way, but, um, two that I'll highlight, uh, that are, that um, are both uh, Vancouver-based. Um, one of them is the the North Shore Stroke Recovery Center. So this is a this is an organization in North Vancouver that provides uh, stroke uh, recovery and counseling services uh, for members of of the North Shore community that that uh, have been affected by stroke. So this could be the individual that had the stroke or their family members, their caregivers, that type of thing. Um, we have a, a staff of people that put on uh, both. Um, programming in terms of, you know, we do, we do art therapy, we do music therapy, we do, um, we do exercise classes, uh, we do different things to, to support them uh, in the community. And one of the reasons this, this was a charity that was uh, very close to my heart is actually my dad uh, passed away from the complications due to a stroke back in 2012. And he was with this organization, they, they had, uh, he had been a member there for about six years before he passed. And they were they were a huge help to our family and, and to him. And when I was looking, you know, as I as I got off a, a, another board a few years ago, I was looking for for something new to get involved with. And healthcare was an area that I that I wanted to be involved with. And uh, this was this was a perfect fit. And I've been there for a few years now. And we've really made some good strides um, in improving the organization um, with you know with the staff and the board is pretty much turned over completely in the last few years. And, um, you know, this is a good example of an organization where, um, you know, COVID had a lot of uh, effects for us because, you know, we, we have a lot of, um, you know, most of our members are, are uh, more senior members of society. And, um, you know, for those people, uh, isolation at home can be very lonely for them. And that can be, we could turn into, turn into um, mental health issues and, and that type of thing. And for us, you know, this really, our programming was really a haven for these people to, to come in and, not only did they receive the therapy that that they um, that they uh, that they needed, but uh, it was also a community, right, where they could come in and, and talk with each other and, and just see the same people, and, and it was uh, it's a really great place. And so now, for that organization, amid COVID, we've we've um, shut down our in-person programming, obviously, uh, for with all the the um, isolation restrictions and that kind of thing. But at the same time, we're really ramping up and trying to innovate on what we can do remotely, right? So we're doing a lot of remote programming on exercise class, music therapy, um, check-ins with our with our members and that kind of type of thing. So it's I think it's a really big success story, actually, when we're talking about not only just generally as a as a nonprofit and and how you know you you know you can improve over the years, but also how you can improve amidst amidst a crisis like this and and how it really forces you to do something different. And the other thing is we're even talking now about, you know, these are these are great additions to our programming, this remote work, this remote programming where, you know, this could absolutely be part of our programming when we do eventually uh, go back to in-person is we also be able to offer this programming remotely to our members that, you know, maybe are ill one day or, or are traveling and, and can't come to the center directly. So 
it's it's really um, I think been a, it had been a good story over the last six weeks for us there. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting the opportunity. Like it's it's a super trying time right now, but it is interesting the opportunity that comes up when people are you know, press to, to work in a different way and have to, you know, deliver services or support people in, uh, you know, the current environment, the, you know, the insights and the opportunities that can come out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, just to, you know, over the, on the topic of, of COVID, are there other things you're seeing in some of the other nonprofits you're involved in around, you know, best practices around response or, or things that some of these organizations are doing to be able to, to weather the storm right now? Yeah, I think there's one of the things I've noticed, which is great, is there's there's a lot of information out there for uh, nonprofits and, and their boards. Um, you know, a lot of organizations are putting on um, free webinars to talk about issues and, and recommendations in this kind of crisis planning. Probably the most, the most valuable um, the most valuable information that that I've seen and we've really utilized in, in a couple of the boards that I'm a part of is is around the scenario planning for COVID, right? You know, what are, what are we doing right now? How long could this potentially last? Um, what kind of, you know, things are we going to have to do to keep ourselves um, going? And maybe not even going, you know, in some organizations, it's about, you know, well, how do we, how do we maintain steady state? In other organizations, it's about you know, we, we just don't have the funding, we need to ramp down, but we, we still want to stay alive. And then other organizations, you know, are looking at, well, what are the opportunities here? How could we potentially grow our programming uh, in this, in this, um, in this situation? So I think for, for organizations to do some scenario planning is very valuable um, and start, start thinking about that because, you know, it's, it's one thing to think about, you know, if this only lasts till, you know, if we look at uh, the Canadian government's modeling for how long this Last. We're talking anywhere from end of the summer is what I've seen until, you know, could be next spring. So depending on what those situations are really changes how you need to plan for, for the next year of, of work in your nonprofit. Um, and I, th- I think that's a very valuable exercise to do and to continue to update over, over the next while as more information comes out. I would say another thing that, that I'm really seeing, and I'm, we're sort of, you know, as you said, things are very fluid right now is, um, I think there's a big opportunity actually for, for nonprofits in the COVID situation. And the reason is, is although some organizations are really struggling with, um, with funding uh, and that type of thing, there are other organizations, be it other nonprofits or businesses that are doing quite well right now for what, for one reason or the other, they either, you know, they have money um, that's still available or, you know, they're doing well from a business perspective and there is a lot of opportunity, I think, for those types of, of either grants or even individual donations. You know, people are seeing that charities are struggling. And I know at least what I'm seeing in Canada is individuals are really, you know, opening up their hearts and really want to support uh, these charities and, and make sure that they can, you know, they stay, uh, they stay alive. And I think there's a big opportunity there for, for a lot of nonprofits to, you know, to, um, to focus on those areas, to focus on other nonprofits or foundations that are doing well, or businesses that are doing well, or people that are really feeling, you know, that they want to support these organizations. And I think there's a there's a good opportunity there to um, to 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 get your fundraising from from other avenues than you may have traditionally. So you know, I've 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 encouraged, you know, at least we've been looking at on my on the boards I'm a part of, but I would encourage other board members as well. You know, look at look at different sources of funding 
that you didn't have uh, before because there are still a lot of individuals and businesses and foundations that are doing well and want to help now more than even more than they ever did. Right. Speaking of which, I mean, this, uh, I think you just teed me up for a question that I, I know I'd be kicking myself if I didn't ask, which, you know, I often hear a lot from people is, um, you know, how to get involved in nonprofits, how to get involved in, uh, you know, nonprofit boards and any, you know, advice you have for, for people who uh, want to help some of these organizations, you know, how to get involved, ways to approach it, ways to think about it, you know, places to start yeah. if people are interested. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I think people would be surprised how many charities and nonprofits there are actually out there. I, th I think the number is close to 200,000 uh, nonprofits in Canada, as an example, and individual organizations. So there are a lot of, of organizations that need people's support, and they need support in terms of volunteers, you know, on the ground volunteers and that type of thing. They need support in terms of board members. They need support in terms of, you know, staff that are capable and that kind of thing. I would encourage anyone who's interested, you know, to, you know, I've, I find a lot, some of the boards that I found have been, I've not known about the organizations and I have found them through, you know, almost through job postings the same way as you would a, uh, a normal, uh, you know, a, a paid job, let's say. They pull a lot of the board positions are posted. A lot of the volunteer positions are posted. And I think that's a, that's a great first start. And also have a think about, you know, if you want to narrow it down, think about what kind of areas you do want to support in. You know, is it, is it healthcare? Is it education? Is it, you know, youth? All those different things. Think about where you'd like to support and try to, try to find something on there. Eventually, I would say, you know, in my personal experience, it, it actually becomes a bit organic because you start to develop this network of different nonprofits that you've worked with or you've, you know, you've had the opportunity to meet through your work at another nonprofit. And eventually, you know, again, like very much like business, it becomes a, a great network where people, you know, see, you know, oh, I, I uh, you know, I know that Andrew has this great skill set. And, uh, you know, he was involved with this organization. I think he's, he's coming up on the end of his term. I think he'd be perfect for your organization. They put you in touch. And, and it, it becomes to a point where you're not actually looking for the opportunities. You know, other people often are because you know them or they know you. You're finding opportunities for each other and that kind of thing. And I always, you know, I've, I've, I've linked friends and colleagues up with boards where, you know, I know them well enough to know their skill sets. And, and um, I've, I've made those introductions. And, and that's... Um, you know, I'm really happy when that works out and I'm, I'm able to, you know, connect someone who wants to give back and has the right skills for an organization to get involved with that organization. Right, right. Now, is that just out of my own curiosity, is that normal for most boards to have fixed terms and, and rotate through regularly? I would say it is. And I would even argue in my, in my own um, opinion and experience, uh, if they don't, they should. <laughs> because I think with, with, with any board, you know, people, yeah. people start, you do start to stagnate. I mean, I've, I've been on boards anywhere uh, right now from two years to, I think my longest was around seven years. And I think that that's probably about the most you want to be on a board. And I realize that people can still be passionate about the organization or the issue, but after a certain amount of time, I think it's very, very healthy to bring on people with new ideas, new energy and all those types of things. So yeah, I, th I think it's pretty common. And again, if not, I, I think that boards should be doing that and, and uh, having new members join. But of course, also thinking about continuity, you don't want to 
change out your whole board, you know, in one go, you want to, you know, you know, you want people to be changing out in, in, uh, in a responsible way. So you have that continuity as well. Well, I think that certainly connects to the comment you made earlier, where you, you know, you were saying that it, from your point of view, the, the most value you add is often stepping onto a new board and being able to bring the experience and things you learn from different organizations you've been a part of and be able to offer that right away. And the only reason you're able to do that is because one, you know, you've been through a number of, you've seen a lot of other organizations and two, you know, people are switching out, you know, if there was somebody in that other organization or if the entire board was, you know, 20 years plus, and nobody wanted to move, they wouldn't have the benefit of having, you know, people with fresh eyes and fresh experience and different experiences coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, initially, I was I was going to say, well, you know, let's have a big change of gears here um, onto a different topic. But I, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this a really awkward segue, but point out that, you know, I think almost without exception, every, everything you've said about the nonprofit sector certainly applies to the for-profit sector. Um, you know, I'm, uh, everything you've mentioned are things I've certainly observed in when it comes to, you know, organizational focus, um, board composition, um, you know, all this sort of stuff is, is completely applicable to best practices for, you know, for-profit organizations. Um, yeah. So let's move and start talking a little bit about, you know, the mining sector, um, and maybe we can pick up your background a little bit and, you know, talk through. So you mentioned that, you know, after UBC, you went up to work for Tech's Highland Valley Copper operation, um, in operations um, mm. for a few years there. Maybe you could pick it up from there. Yeah, so I, I decided to get into operations right after school and, and you know, really take that, you know, theoretical part of, of education and, and, um, and put, it, put it to practice. Um, you know, worked in operations in metallurgy for Tech for uh, four or five years. Um, based out of Kamloops. After that, I moved back to Vancouver and worked for um, worked for Extrata Technology, which is now uh, Glencore Technology. This is it's the uh, the kind of um, technology and commercial development arm of of Glencore. So really, really interesting organization. So there was there was a, that was actually an interesting role in terms of it was a really great transition actually between operations and you know working in. Um, more in a business development role, which which is is where I am now with uh, with uh, a company called Autotech based uh, in Finland. So the the Extrata role was was really focused on it was a business development role, but because we were a very small team, people who were doing business development would once you know once a a project was won, you would then become the process lead on that project, and then you would then go and commission the technology after it was after it was installed. So you'd really see everything from the front end of you know, right when the project starts all the way through to you're actually going to the site and, and commissioning it. So you kind of had this, you had this BD stuff on the front and the engineering work in the middle, and then really back to operations on the end. Then I, I was there for about three years and then, yeah. I was just going to ask if that was a, you know, a deliberate choice to move into, um, you know, more business development stuff from operations, or if that's something you had had in mind and you, you know, made a point of getting operations experience first or what the, what the circumstances were around that? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely wanted to get operations experience first. Um, you know, and like I said, really to, to, to combine, you know, the practical and the theoretical together. Um, but, you know, as my, you know, as the years went on um, and I, I learned, I was able to learn more about the business side of the industry. 
I really realized that that was actually what what I was more passionate about um, on it. And I th- I think that having the engineering and the the operations experience is a is a great base that I would you know I wouldn't give up for anything because it it uh, it really grounds the work that I do now even which you know I'm uh, operations wise and commissioning wise you know, there's really not that much uh, work that I do now, but having that experience uh, has been a really important part of my my career. But uh, like I said, I, I really realized that the business side of things was what I was what I was more passionate about. So I think that was it was it was a bit of a it was a, it was kind of a bit of luck, I would say, Andrew, to 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 find that role at, at Extrata that had a bit of both sides, because it really w- was was a, a good stepping stone to introduce me more to the business side of things. And then it was while I was at Extrata that I really kind of decided, yeah, you know, that's really where I'd like to take my career is, is really more onto the, the business side of uh, mining, which is when I, after three years at Extrata, I joined Autotech, um, started off as a, as a technology manager and then a business development manager and uh, now uh, a director of a global proposals team. Right. I feel like there's something... Um... You know, I wonder if you feel the same way, um, you know, because a similar situation with Autotech right now is that this idea of being, you know, on a small remote team of a much larger organization. Um, I had a, you know, I had a few, uh, a few years at Suncor and I found, you know, there were some people who I, and I was, you know, right in the mothership up at Oil Sands. Um, but there's some few people that I knew who, you know, were in similar situations where it seems like you get, you know, you get all of the organizational kind of structure and discipline of a very large organization, but then you also have this component of autonomy, you know, right. especially if you're several time zones away, um, you know, in a small regional office. And it, I just get the sense it feels like sometimes it's that best of both worlds scenario, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. And I think, um, you know, I, I would say it, it probably depends a bit on the company, but um, you know, I've been very lucky with, with the, with the organizations that I've been a part of, Let's say in particular, Autotech, we're we're um, you know we're a very modern company in terms of of remote work. We've been doing that type of work for for quite a quite a number of years now, um, and you know we're very progressive um, in that way. And and um, I think it works very successfully. I mean, I think that a lot of our teams, we one of our values is take ownership, and we really take that to heart. And that's exactly what you're talking about. It's you know we we get high level direction on on our goals and what we're trying to achieve as a as an overall company, but we really want people to, you know, to, to feel like their own small business owner and, and, and really do what they feel lines up best with, with supporting our customers and, and achieving the, the end goals of the company. And, and I think that's a great way to work. You know, I think empowering people is the job of, of management. And, um, you know, I, I think that it, it works really well for us. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're able to work successfully as a, as a semi-remote company and now as an even more remote company amid, amid COVID. Um, I think one of the, probably the big challenges for companies in, in uh, moving to remote work is actually around, you know, how much authority do you have over your employees? How much do you, do you manage their work? If you were used to managing your employees very, very closely, I think you're going to have a lot harder time moving to, to a remote system. But on the same token, I would almost argue that it's a blessing in disguise for you because really, you know, I feel like in the, in the modern age, you know, we, you, it's really, it forces you, we want people to be leaders as, as, as managers and, and really lead their teams and focusing on leading the people rather than managing the work, let's just say. And, and I think that this is 
hopefully going to force a lot of companies to who, who did have that that um, former attitude of of managing work very closely. I think this is going to force them that to to realize that the way to get things done effectively remotely is to really focus on leadership and, and leading your people. So I mean, I can I can make some inferences on uh, from from those comments on what your you know, beliefs are around effective leadership style, but maybe you could make that a bit more explicit and, you know, talk through with me what you, you know, and especially in this remote context, because I'm, I'm, I'm correct in saying that your, your team is completely remote from you. Is that right? They're, they're Finland based. They're, they're not, yeah, they're not all in Finland, actually. They're, so I've got, there's 15 people on our team and they're in six different countries all over the world. (laughs) So there, there is no time zone that lines up. Uh, The best case scenario for a meeting for my team, if we want to get everyone together, is I'm on a phone at at 5am and my, my team members in uh, Australia are on the phone at 10pm. That's best case scenario. (laughs) <laughs> so so yeah it's it's a it's a very it's a very remote team um we do we do have some smaller uh clusters of of team members in finland in particular um but yeah for the most part i mean the, the team is is very is uh is very split up around the world um so you know and do you think it you know i'm inferring here that you know your beliefs around your leadership beliefs are around a lot of you know autonomy and giving people the space and um, and tools they need to do their job and, you know, being relatively hands off. Am I, am I inferring that correctly? Is there anything yes. to qualify yeah. there? No, I would, I, I think you, you're, you're bang on Andrew. Um, I mean, my, my view, I'm, I'm the type of person that, um, you know, I, I trust people until you give me a reason not to and not the other way around. So, you know, my belief is, you know, you, you know, if you can't trust your people, why hire them in the first place? Right. I really feel like we, you know, as a company and, and as, you know, leadership in a company, um, it's the role to set a vision and a mission and, and the values around how we work to those goals. And of course, set, set more micro level team goals and that kind of thing about what, what exactly we're, we're trying to achieve to contribute to the broader picture. But, you know, I think it's very, I think it's a very powerful thing when, when people are empowered and, and given the autonomy to achieve um, goals in the best way that that they see fit. I mean, I I've often argued, you know, or I've often said, you know, my mantra was uh, results, not hours, right? And what I mean mm. by that is, yeah, you know, you you want people. We don't hire people to sit in a chair for eight hours a day. We hire them to accomplish something. And you know, it's not. It, I really don't want to be so arrogant as to tell people how they work best. You know, if someone works better in the morning or the afternoon, or, you know, they work better in a coffee shop or those types of things, everyone has something different. Everyone is an individual. And, you know, I want to encourage and empower uh, people to to work the, the, the best that they know how and to achieve the, the goals that, that we as a company and leadership have set for them, um, you know, and having them really focused on the vision long-term and, and really tailoring their behaviors and what they're doing on a day-to-day basis towards that longer-term vision and, and, and what we're trying to do as a company. So, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty, like, mature state when it comes to remote work, you know, that a lot of companies are, um, you know, having to transition to whether they like it or not, you know, and the, and the level of success or not that they're experiencing with it. Um, but you know, this, this results versus hours thing, 
you know, certainly has to be the the far end member of the continuum when it comes to, you know, are we just micromanaging people or are we all the way on the other end saying, hey, this is this is what your tasks are. This is the expectation. And, you know, you go about it however you like. What are what are some of the ways or best practices, you know, whether it's or, or I'm assuming it's a combination of, you know, technology and, um, you know, practices and behavior? Uh, you know, what can you tell us about, you know, what what works, what doesn't work in your mind when it comes to managing in that way? Yeah, so I, I think the, the the first thing to remember is, you know, everyone is different, right? Like I said, everyone, you know, has different needs. Uh, they have different circumstances, particularly right now amid COVID when, you know, different people, they may be, um, they may be ill themselves, they may be caring for a family member, they may be caring for, for children, um, anything like that, right? So I think, I think first and foremost, let's say from the leadership perspective, it's it's more important than ever to to have really good empathy with your employees. And when when I say that, I don't you know I really think of it differently than sympathy. It's not just you know knowing that you're you know that that the people you're working with are are going through something and you understand their their circumstances. It's really feeling and understanding those circumstances that they're in and putting yourself in their shoes and, and really trying to give them the freedom of, of what they need in order to do their work that, you know, among their own circumstances. So as a leadership, as a, as a leader in, in this circumstance, or just generally in remote work, I think that's one of the, one of the most important things. I think another thing for leaders to do, uh, and this is, this is also critical. It's, it's about, it's, it's all about the over communication. You know, one of my mentors once told me that if, uh, People haven't heard what you're trying to say until you're sick of saying it. And that really, <laughs> really stuck with me because it's kind of, it goes to that adage of like, you know, you think of a CEO doing a roadshow and, you know, they're trying to, you know, get their employees bought into something. They've probably done the roadshow 15 times and they're, you know, they're, you know, they're getting to that point where they're sick of hearing it themselves, but there are people all over. There's going to be people who are going to say, well, I haven't heard that yet. I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. So right. I really right. think it's important to over communicate. There's, there's no issue with saying the same message twice, multiple times, making sure people have heard it. They've got a lot going on. Um, and, I, and I think that's another really important thing of, of remote um, leadership. And in terms of working from home for employees or for myself, you know, I've really, I, I mean, I think it's right now it's, uh, it's challenging because we've, you know, we've, we've thrust people into remote work who weren't doing it before. And for those people, it's going to be the hardest adjustment for, for me, you know, at AutoTech, I've been working in the office and, and from home over the last six years. So I've really had the chance to kind of fine tune what really works for my personal circumstances. Uh, but I think there's overall a, a few things that, that I've personally learned that, that I think are is good advice that uh, that I would give to others. Um, one of them is is about your own personal efficiency. You know, I think for this really, there's a dichotomy here, which is some people work from home and they actually end up overworking. You get in front of the computer at at eight a.m. Uh, just to maybe check your emails before you have a shower, and then you realize that you're still sitting at your computer and it's two in the afternoon and you've just been working a solid you know, since then, right? And it's really easy to do that and, and you know, not, you know, not, uh, not, not have a, a proper schedule. On the flip side of that, it's about the distractions, right? There are other people who, you know, they find it really hard to work from home. They, they get distracted easily be, with whatever they have in their home and, and that type of thing. And, and I think there's those two dichotomies and, and 
it's kind of, you know, I, I don't necessarily have an answer for, for both of those because it, it's just something to be aware of and something that every individual needs to kind of figure out, you know, which one am I and how do I kind of over how, what's going to work for me to overcome this. And of course, if there's anything, you know, for the, for, you know, the, the manager to understand, it's just that people are in these different circumstances and, and have some leeway on, on how you deal with your, with your people. And then on that same note, I think the other really important thing is all about, you know, caring for yourself, right? So setting boundaries when you're at home, right? Having a dedicated workspace when it's possible, when it's not possible, you know, set up your desk, clean it up at the end of the day, keep a schedule, celebrate your wins. You know, it's sometimes it's hard to realize that, you know, you're doing a lot of great work when you're just at home and you haven't talked to anyone, those kind of things. I think that's another really important thing is, is making sure you're taking care of yourself. And of course, that we're, we're taking care of others, I would say as well. You know, I, I really, it, it's really important for me to, to check in with, with the team members. And, and, you know, we're not, when we check in, we don't, we're not necessarily always talking about, well, what are you working on right now? What, what have you done the last couple of weeks? It's not a check-in to make sure people are working. It's a, it's a check-in to see how people are doing, how they're feeling, what do they need in order to do their jobs better and, and what challenges are they facing and maybe what wins they've had and those, those types of things. I think those are much more important conversations to have with your remote employees, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, rather than saying, okay, the, my check-in today is to make sure you've done X, Y, and Z over the past, over the past week. I think you give people autonomy to do their work. They'll feel empowered. And at the end of the day, all my experience points to, they will do a better job than if you were micromanaging them. Absolutely. So what are the things that you've been doing to take care of yourself? Probably one that I've that I learned um, early on uh, was about the setting the boundaries. You know, I I used to be, I used to feel that because I was working at home, I needed to be on all the time. I needed to be available all the time. You know, so I would be checking my emails into the evening. You know, available for calls, and I would find you know that would really you know that would that would be you know it would be disrupting for my family. It would be disrupting for myself for my sleep because you know particularly if something came up that was there was nothing I could do about it then and had to wait till morning, you know, you're, you're stressed out and you go to sleep and that type of thing. Um, so that, you know, that was unhealthy for sure. And so I think that that, that has been the biggest boundary that I've set is, is keeping a, 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 a pretty um, set work schedule. And of course there's, you know, there's, there's situations where, you know, you, you, uh, you need to do things outside of work hours, but for the most part, I really try to, to stick to my schedule and, and, um, I think that's probably, if I could say one thing, that's the number one thing for me personally on how um, I've made a big change that has made made a big impact to my my self care. Yeah, yeah, I can certainly relate to that. Um, you know, I know when I was in a more of a direct direct line sales role, that was uh, something that was not great for my personal relationships. Was you know, at, at the time, you know, date myself a little bit on this, but at the time, you know, the BlackBerry right beside the bed and it's the last thing you check before you go to sleep yeah. and the first thing you check in the morning and you're, you know, laying over the side of the bed answering emails. Um, you know, it's it certainly not promoting uh, great sleep as well as not promoting a number, number of exactly. other, uh, you know, personal relationships. Yeah, growth. and not, um, not, just for, not just for you, but for your team members, right? When they see that type of behavior, they feel like they yeah. need to do it as well. And, and so you're putting them in a really tough position. So, you know, you have to look out for yourself and, and it also, you have to realize what example you're setting for others. And that also, it, it may be people who work for you. It could be your colleagues. It also could be 
your managers, right? You know, I, I feel like you, you know, everyone as a leader in a company has the opportunity to set an example at all three of those levels, right? For everyone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think that uh, that's pretty good coverage. It looks like we're at about the, you know, we're getting close to an hour here. Um, covered a lot of ground. Um, any other comments for people out there, uh, you know, stuck at home? I don't want to date this this uh, podcast too much, but, you know, right now the important thing is, you know, people stuck at home, um, you know, it's to varying degrees of, of isolation from other people. Any uh, any advice or comments for people you want to leave them with? You know, I'm, the, the one thing that's... Um that uh, has stuck with me over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to, I'm going to steal a line from uh, Simon Sinek, who, uh, you know, I follow, he's a, a leadership consultant in the U S for, for anyone who doesn't know him. But um, one of the, one of the insights that he had that I, I really found profound and has really stuck with me over the last few weeks was he talked about how this COVID situation, it's really important to frame it in terms of your own personal life and your business and that type of thing. And he talked about how, you know, it's really important that we stop referring to this, to COVID as unprecedented. We as, you know, individuals or as businesses have been through major challenges before. You know, I, I had said to my team member and to, to uh, you know, my colleagues, even as recently as 2016, the mining industry in particular, you know, you're, you're in my industry, Andrew, was in terrible shape, right? And it was, you know, we, everyone was, was, was looking at, you know, what was going to come next. And it was only then that we saw things starting to improve. And now we're in, you know, we're in another dip. The mining industry has been in dips many times before. And I think that's a really powerful thought to not, not just think that this is a circumstance that has never happened before and we are totally unprepared and we're, we're, you know, we were totally out of control and, and we, we, uh, you know, there's nothing we can do here. There are absolutely things we can do in this situation. We can, we can think of it with the mindset that we've been through these challenges before and we can get through this one as well. We just need to adjust the way we're working and we need to, you know, we need to get innovative about how we're doing business and the same, not just business, but in our personal lives, people have been through hardships before, you know, family members passing away, uh, you know, tough things have happened in, in many of our lives, right? They're happening again now. They will happen again in the future. You know, it's a, it's about resiliency and about, I think, putting the right lens on it to get through it in an optimistic way, right? And, and the thing with optimism is it's not about being happy all the time or saying this is not a problem. It is a problem, but we're it, it's going to get better. And we can get through this if we put the right lens on it and we do the right things and we innovate and we're better prepared for the new world at the end of this. So that's been a very powerful thought for me. And, and I, I definitely, uh, thanks for, for reminding me to share that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you did. I mean, I, uh, certainly a, you know, a positive attitude goes a long way in, in any situation, um, you know, and, and very rarely has a bad attitude been the right or productive response to any situation. So I think it's, um, yeah, absolutely critical that people keep that in mind. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Mark. I, Appreciate you taking the time today. I appreciate the, uh, you know, the new things that I was able to learn about you. Hopefully people listening um, took a lot away from this. Um, so thanks very much. And, uh, you know, there's a good response. Perhaps we'll uh, have a round two in the future. There you go. Thanks a lot, Andrew. It's always it's a pleasure to talk to you and, and to be able to reflect on some of these things myself as well. So I really appreciate it and uh, wish you guys all the best family-wise and, and business-wise in, in, in the current circumstance. And uh, stay healthy and and I look forward to uh, 
having a beer with you when this is all over. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Likewise. <laughs>